You're listening to episode 174 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones, and it is the 26th of November 2021 here in Norwich. Last night, we revealed the winners of the East Anglian Book Awards 2021. If you missed the big ceremony, you can check it out over on YouTube. I'm going to put a link down in the show notes. The Book of the Year Award was at last announced, and it went to Melissa Harrison for The Stubborn Light of Things. The awards ceremony is full of interviews with the different writers from all the awards categories, including a really interesting little insight into the creation of Anita Staff's cover for Boy in Various Poses, which won the Book by the Cover Award. Highly recommend giving it a watch. There's still time to get the early bird discount on our creative writing online courses. Again, I'll put links down in the show notes and you can find out more information about those over on the website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. We have courses on writing historical fiction, crime fiction, creative non-fiction and much more. So do go check those out before places fill up. As we're a non-profit, every time you sign up for one of our courses, you're actually helping us to carry on with the work we do to support writers at all stages all around the country. So on the show today, we have Jared McGuinness talking about his debut 2021 novel, The Coward. It's a fictional story with a protagonist also called Jared. And in talking with Peggy Hughes on the podcast today, he unpicks the boundary between fact and fiction. Jared is the co-founder of The Special Relationship, an organisation which was chosen for the International Literature Showcase back in 2016. And a little known anecdote, when Jared was visiting Norwich as part of that back in 2017, I very nearly became trapped inside Norwich Castle with him after an event. I won't go into full details, but suffice to say we did both eventually manage to escape and only required a small amount of daring do to do so. As part of the special relationship, Jared was the creative director for Moby Dick Unabridged, a four-day immersive multimedia reading of Herman Melville's Moby Dick at the Southbank Centre, which involved hundreds of participants. I really wish I'd had a chance to actually go and see that. His short fiction has been commissioned for BBC Radio 4 and has appeared in numerous journals. He's been an associate writer for Spread the Word and a mentor for The Word Factory. Okay, I will now hand over to Peggy who is chatting with Jared all about the writing of The Coward and that curious blend of fact and fiction. It's a great conversation between Peggy and Jared. Uh, just wait until you hear about Jared's wormery. Jared, it's so nice to have you today on the podcast with us to talk about your amazing, astonishing book, The Coward. Uh, if we, what would you sort of, let's start from the very beginning in the words of Julie Andrews and just tell us a little <laughs> bit about the sort of starting engine for this book. When did you want to start writing it and, and, and what was the, the thing that kicked it off, I guess? So I suppose it started by me not wanting to write it because, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm an author in a wheelchair and I know publishing very quickly will put you in a little box and anytime you try to sneak out of that little box, they'll put you right back in that box. And I didn't want to be a hyphenated author. I wanted to be, I wanted to be an author. I wanted to write something that was kind of undeniable regardless of that, you know, and, uh, but as these things are, like, you know, what you want to write isn't entirely up to you. There's, there's, something in the, there's something in the psyche that's pushing you towards something. And I was writing a bunch of short stories and kind of getting attention for the short stories. And when I kind of looked at it, I think it was kind of looking at, oh, maybe this is a collection. And then I'm like, oh, man, this is a, this is, this is a novel. And now i got to figure out how to learn how to write novels. 
because they're such very different forms. And and honestly, you could my earlier drafts were clearly a short story writer trying to write a novel. And so I had to figure it out. And I mean, because I, you know, I have a background in a scientist, I take a very kind of scientific approach. And I really kind of go, okay, what are the books that matter to me? Why do they matter? What and then and also reading bad books is such an education. Because why am I angry right now? Like, why is this this uh, book? And um, we, we used to have a, a, a wormery. And if a book was really bad, they went into the wormery. <laughs> so if anyone want to digs up <laughs> some dirt on what I really thought about certain books, the worms will tell you. Literal um, dirt charts. So I'm going to stop you there. <laughs> Simply to say, I don't need names. We don't want names. But are there any things you can identify in the books that end up in, a, in the wormery? That, that are, what were the t- absolute turnoffs, I guess, uh, for you yeah. there? So it's a really good question. So that's it. And again, it's for me and like, what are the books that are, why do I love these books? And, and then the books that I hated and often, so it would be characters who are just there to kind of deliver some, do some plot work. And I just, it just annoyed me. Like it was just, I get it like plot, blah, blah, blah. But I, my characters, I want them to be living and breathing and you happen to capture them in a moment in their lives, even like secondary characters. And it's kind of fascinating to see how people respond to different characters. It isn't just like, yeah, this was my favorite character. That was my favorite character. Other certain readers are bringing up, you know, like, oh, I really loved Fritz, which, you know, only has a very tiny amount of screen time. But, you know, somebody responded to Fritz and that to me is that I've, I've done my job. And when I see, you know, these, these books that kind of really are these, these aren't real characters and you're, I just don't think you're being fair to the characters. And I don't, I don't know, I, as a re I, I'm, I come from, I come from a real kind of love of humanity and it's all, it's broken messiness mm-hmm. and that goes for fictional ones as well. So. Yeah. And so that leads me to my, to my really, my, it doesn't won't escape anyone's notice that has read the book or will yet, will yet read it. Uh, you know, that the, the protagonist does, you know, bear some resemblance to you, you know, you, he shares your name and some, you know, the fact he's also in a wheelchair, for instance, can, can you tell us a bit more about that creative decision and about the mm. relationship between the real and the fictional Jareds? Yeah, it was, again, it was, it was a thing that I kind of knew um, the reader would inevitably make and the way novels are presented this, these days, that connection was always going to be made between the character and, and the, uh, the author. And I wanted to destabilize that. I wanted to make sure that, you know, again, if you're lazy and just read it, it's going to be a great ripping, roaring story and you're going to love it. I'm gonna make you cry, make you laugh. But, you know, that inevitable kind of conflation always kind of happens, especially the way like the modern product, you know, the way, you know, publishing kind of tries to make these kind of ties and these personalities behind the book. And as a reader, I'm not interested. And I kind of, and, but uh, I knew it was going to happen. So it was like, okay, let's get in front of this. The character is my name. I put a kind of relatively kind of spiky, rebarbative epigraph to just be like, here is the project. And it is just, and what is amazing is that people got it. I thought it was this kind of little thing that was important to me, but there was this amazing review in the Times that like, she like figured me out. Like, I hope I never meet her because she will just read into my soul and I don't want that. <laughs> um, and yeah, and and the other side of that was I didn't want the, um, I didn't kind of, I didn't, I, I want. I didn't want the uh, deniable, you know, plausible deniability that some fiction writers want between them and their characters. And I wanted to admit that, yeah, it's this. Some of this stuff that he's saying and thinking is me. 
I'm not, you know, the, the ugliness of, of Jared, the character, it comes from somewhere. And it was kind of phenomenal when I, when I stopped pretending that, that it was just, you know, just writing the story just happened to be another wheelchair guy. Um, <laughs> it really cracked it open. And I think what you, I think what a lot of the responses are, you know, they talk about honesty and I think that's because I was able to admit kind of the ugliness and it was a huge catharsis to kind of finish the book. And, you know, that's why I kind of say like, um, people spend tons of ma- money on therapy, but I, I figured out a way to make people pay me sixteen ninety nine a pop <laughs> to just kind of like be a little bit more at peace with myself as a human. And gosh, that's great. And, uh, and I think what it made was for a better novel. I, I really do believe that. And, um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's special. It's, yeah, it's great. I agree there. I mean, I, th- I have read somewhere in a, in a different interview that you're saying that writing it did put some ghosts to rest, as it were. Yeah. I mean, for that, for all that, then was it a hard book to write, or hard to get it over the finish? Or can you talk us through a little bit of that side of the writing of it? It's really interesting. The hardest things for me, um, and I kind of say I've kind of said this before as well, is that like writing this book. Um, gave me an understand a disability that like 20 years of actually being disabled failed to deliver. And I think that just maybe says something about me. <laughs> uh, let's not think too much about it, but like um, it was really kind of under, I am, I've been in a wheelchair for 20 years. I'm quite com- My, my sense of self has kind of, it, it's part of my sense of self. I don't think about it. Everyone else does because they see the wheelchair, but for me, I just pop about and you, you, you know, me, you've seen me kind of like operate, um, you know, I, my, one of my favorite things to do is like to jump onto a train and watch the guy rushing towards me with a ramp and just like just jump on right before he can, he gets to me. It's not nice, but <laughs> get my, get my thrills where I can. Um, and it was, and, and I think that was a difficult, the most difficult thing psychologically to put me back in that place. But again, maybe that's what cracked something open and, some, some of the trauma that I had compartmentalized and why I couldn't understand what it was like to be that vulnerable again. Um, you know, it, that worked and I, I got to that. And again, that kind of, that vulnerability, and this really is about, you know, about vulnerability and how you're not really allowed as a man to admit it. Um, and yeah, so I think that was probably the hard to get into. And I was like researching it and I was like looking at people discussing who are newly injured. Cause I rem- and that really sparked some memories of like, you know, just the questions, just kind of what's going to happen. And um, yeah, it really, it, it opened up the space where I could make Jared, I gave him the vulnerability he needed, you know, whether he was worthy and capable of love, you know, that kind of thing. And that's, uh, I think that's at the heart of the book. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Um, and now we're talking about Jared, uh, Jared McGuinness in the novel, um, and and he's not an he's not an easy character, is he? Really, I mean, I'm <laughs> quoting directly from the book. You know, what's worse than being in a wheelchair, being a fuck up in a wheelchair? So why why did Jared in the novel have to be a, such a complicated figure for you? Well, I mean, so one, it it yeah, easy answers don't make for good fiction. Uh, that's one that's one answer, and the. Other one as well was that um, I set out to write a book about a disabled character that wasn't about disability because that's where I could see people were pushing me towards. And and I get it, like, because that's the story they know, so they think that's the story that should be told. Um, and so I, I that was my, my deliberate project and foolhardy, but it, it's, it's now I feel slightly better about it. <laughs> Because that's it. You could see people, there's so few stories about disability that people just want to go back. And that's the, that's 
the problem that runs across anyone who's underrepresented is people think they know what that story is. And so when you don't go along those lines, those kind of well-worn lines, they question you, not there. And so that really was my project was to get the reader to question their assumptions. And so I, you know, and how that worked functionally was that he he has a lot of problems and the wheelchair is is the least of them. And the irony is, is that he can, you know, the coward can no longer run away. He's got to face these problems. And I put him at the, at the heart, I put him back to a place where he has to, to, he has to, um, you know, deal with his, his equally, uh, you know, a snarky father, um, who hasn't seen in 10 years and, you know, the way those guys communicate and the way they kind of work through them, process what happened to them in the past. Yeah. That feels like a great, I want to talk to you obviously about Jack. I'm a big fan of, of the fat of the, you know, the father, uh, but I, I want to hear, maybe that's a good moment actually to hear a little bit of, you know, kind of back and forth from them, a little reading Jared. Sure. If you, maybe you could tell us just, you know, where in the book this is and Let's where see. we are. So, um, so this is from the very beginning and, Jared hasn't seen Jack in 10 years. He ran away from home, hasn't seen him in 10 years, calls Jack and says, I need someone. He's got nowhere to go. So Jack just goes and picks him up. No questions asked. And this is literally the, 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 the car is pulled up from the hospital into that, his childhood home. So he hasn't seen the childhood home in, in quite a long time. The pecan tree was still front and center, but smaller and unremarkable. In my memories of childhood, it had been a behemoth of rough gray and red bark that dwarfed the house. It, its wide canopy of leaves hung with the beards of catkins, put the entire front yard into shade so that the grass grew only in patches. Beneath it, I saw an, 18, an eight-year-old me cracking nuts between two chunks of cement. His fingers were stained black from the two green husks. From the corner of my eye, I saw a 13-year-old me who snuck out of a side window as a police car pulled into the driveway. By the front door, painted butter yellow, I remembered it as white. The shadow of a younger Jack held 16-year-old me by the throat. This house was haunted with memory. A heaviness pinned me to the seat. My body knew that if I went into this house, there was no pretending. I was a 26-year-old paraplegic with no money, living back home with a man, my father, whom I hadn't spoken to or seen in 10 years. It would be Jack's bad jokes and accusing ghosts and the premature decline that awaited an invalid like me. Jack lifted my legs from the car. The laces of my red Adidas had been removed to make it easier for me to get them on and off. When he set each foot down, the bump against the ground registered at my waist. It was, it unnerved me. Hold on to my arm, grab the old shit handle and lift yourself up. My arm trembled with the effort. I shook my head. The, wing, the wishing you were dead comes at random moments like these. It's just a flash of pining for nothing, but nothingness. And it's gone before you can ransack the medicine cabinet for a bottle half full enough. These moments fade eventually. All right, let me help you. And he leaned in and lifted me out of the car without effort. He wore the same cologne as he did when I was a teenager. Once in the wheelchair, I concentrated on keeping my balance as I lifted my feet and placed them on the footplate. I'll get some wood tomorrow and build you a ramp to make it easier for you to get in and out of the front door. Mom's rose bushes were no longer there no longer where I remembered them. 
After my mom died, the house always had a smell of emptiness, dust, and paint. As Jack brought me into the living room, there was only an, there was also an oily scent that I couldn't place until Jack cleared away his shoeshine kit, a white gym sock stuffed with tins of shoe polish. A sharp knock rattled the front door. You expecting company? Jack asked. I shook my head. He stepped outside and came back holding a pink training toilet. The three princesses in full evening gowns and the lid were weather-faded. Disney-esque shades doomed for eternity to watch toddlers foul before the royal visages. Man, Amazon's really phoning it in these days, Jack said. Why would someone throw that at your door? Neighborhood kids screwing around. There's a whole gang of them live a few streets down, Jack asks. I want to put it out by the trash. You're just rearming them. Jack went outside, and the strangeness of my childhood home fought against its familiarity. I knew this place. I didn't know this place. I belonged. I didn't. I felt a seasick queasiness from the to and fro of it. Jack returned, talking before he was inside the house. When we were potty training you, does that happen a lot? What? What? Toilets uh, thrown at your door? No. Jack chuckled as if I had asked a stupid question. And to be fair, I had. Now listen, when you were little, we had this little training toilet that would play music and when you when you used it. You just refused to be interested. We were at it for months. I was desperate to have one less butt to wipe. Then one day your mom heard the London Bridge playing and rushed in to see you, her clever little boy using the bathroom all by his big boy self. You know what she saw instead? You were pulling water out of the toilet bowl with a cup and pouring it out into your potty, clapping your hands every time London Bridge fired up. A kid's toilet thrown at your door is a weird omen, I said, looking at the window to see if the children were going to return. You were always too clever for your own good, never doing what you're supposed to and still getting rewarded. I think the parable here is that there is more than one way to make the music play, I said. Hey, that even rhymes. You get that on a sampler, Jack said. What do you want to do now? You hungry? You want to watch some TV? Just some sleep, I said, suddenly exhausted by the effort of speaking. All right, I'll set you up in your old room. He pushed the wheelchair into the bedroom, past the door with a hole more than a decade old, as if I needed to be reminded that memories here have consequences. Cardboard boxes sat in the corners. The only evidence of it once having been my childhood room was a painting that I had done in high school art class. My mother is a young woman in a Western shirt, covering her face from the viewer with one hand. Jack said, I'll leave you be. You need anything? Coffee? Juice? A kick in the ass? I just managed to say some pain pills. Yep, right. I'll be right back. Jack returned. Then Jack returned with the medicine and a glass of water. Anything else? No thanks. Just a nap. The drive wore me out. I'm sore. Jack nodded his head toward the painting. Remember that painting? Do you still do any art? I didn't respond. Jack was trying to tell me that our past was okay. He was searching through the ashes to show me something that was intact, but I was too newly broken to recognize a chance to heal old wounds. He looked around, uncomfortable with the silence. All right, if you need that kick in the ass, I'm out here. I'm gonna close the door now, okay?
Oh, lovely, lovely, Jared. I wish we were in a room and you got, got the claps for that that it deserves. It's so so nice to hear hear them both brought to life. But Jack, Jack's voice, I mean, it's that's as I in my head, I had hoped he he would have signed it. I'll ask you a question just though about um about the past and present that we see sort of confront each other there so very richly. Such it's such interesting turf. I, I wonder then, do you believe um can can one truly ever escape and can can that damage truly be repaired? Is that the question you were sort of asking yourself? Uh. I suppose. Um, I think I was more talking about, I really wanted to talk about, you know, memory as story rather than kind of documentation and that these two men can you know, have a version of the truth and, and a version of the history. And it really comes from what they did with that history and how they replayed those stories in those 10 years apart. Um, Jared replayed certain stories and Jack played research, certain stories and they diverged. And really that kind of, you know, that's, that's where the tension comes from is uh you know jack has made peace and jared has not and the kind of book really kind of plays that out and the this the, the book itself goes back and forth to the the present and the past but for me how i was thinking about them it's really him thinking about the past um and i've just kind of pulled away the kind of like you know sitcom wavy lines and so kind of each chapter kind of goes in and things that happen in the present to do kind of cue why he's thinking about that. I don't make it very explicit. And I suppose if you kind of work at it, you could totally see what it was, but I just wanted to make sure they worked and, you know, occasionally putting in those little notes to just orientate the reader to make sure I'm not being, because I'm very interested in making sure the reader comes along with me. I don't want them to kind of, I don't want to batter them with my project. Like I really am keen on making sure that we're all kind of, we're taking this ride together. Um, you know, sometimes we go too fast, but you know, it's, you're there. You're there with the the, the author the, the whole time, the narrator, as it were. So, yeah. so it's a quick additional question. Then I'm interested in how you, the writer, know that. How do you how do you sense check that that the reader's still with you when you're writing it? Because of course the book's in the world now, and reviews will tell you if you've yeah. achieved that. But how do you do it while, <laughs> why, how do you do it while you're writing it? That's te- that. I mean, that is a test. You don't like being a writer is just being just very comfortable with failure <laughs> on a daily basis. <laughs> So like, yeah. And like I've been saying, like, it just makes you really unprepared when it all goes right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, maybe it's because I am kind of, I am conscious of that. And, and, and all, and you know, this is, you know, at the back of the book, there's this list of all the people that kind of, that's why I got it right. It's because I had a bunch of people kind of making sure I got it right. And, you know, my editor is in kind of incredible, you know, author whisperer where she, um, she never, she would never say like, you know, this and this needs to go. She would just kind of, Hey, what do you, what do you think about chapter whatever? You know, like, <laughs> uh, what is she talking about? This, this is a perfect, you know, my sparkling genius is at work here. And then like you read it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I could totally cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was, it's just making sure it was orientated and just, yeah, you know, having readers like really choosing your kind of beta readers very carefully to, and asking the right questions, just make sure. And, and a lot of, a lot of the later drafts before I kind of got an agent and all that stuff was just getting those flips back and forth. And I read a lot of books that did it just to see like when it was annoying and when it was good and what I was willing to do. Cause basically you don't, it doesn't, I, I let the, I let the reader settle in, in the present for a very long time chapter wise, mm-hmm. uh, before we go into the past and the past, the first jump into the past is relatively a big chapter. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a little bit more kind of jumping, you know, yeah. jumping back and forth a little bit quicker once they've orientated it. Yeah. Cause you see like when, um, I mean, 
when people write in dialect, like, you know, when Irvin Welsh goes into dialect, it's difficult at first, but you jump right into it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, um, Ridley Walker is another example. Like, you know, if you've, if you're doing the, if you're doing your job, uh, the, the right kind of reader will, will, will stick with it because they know they see something there that they want and they'll do the work. And I've always wanted readers that are willing to do some work. Um, I'm not going to spell it out for them completely. And, you know, the ending is a, is a good example of that is, um, I, I leave it, I leave it for, you know, we've, we've gone on this, this, you know, 800,000 word journey together. Um, it isn't fair to me to tell you like what it all meant. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'm just one, one opinion of many. Um, so yeah. yeah. yeah it's really interesting kind of the idea of the reader having to, having to do work. And I suppose that made me think what you were just saying, you know, the books about lots of different things, you know, toughness and masculinity and vulnerability yeah. and, and, you know, all, all sorts, but I think it's all it's in a large part about forgiveness, about their forgiveness of each other. And I wondered, mm. you know, when it comes to writing very complicated men as these men are, both of them, Jack and Jared, how much yeah. of, of, uh, is it important to you as the writer that it's the reader's willingness to forgive? How much does their being believable to us be contingent on, on on that do you think i mean so that's it i think i've seen some readers who weren't aren't willing to forgive jared <laughs> um and, it, and then how people respond to the the ending and how and what people think the next chapter that i didn't read i didn't write um uh is really interesting because i think it says much more about them and their journey through the book than what i had intended um, and, and now it's deliberate, that is absolutely deliberate. And just to kind of get, to, I think that's, it's a really good point that you bring up is that I think literature in particular of the art forms is the one that makes you do the most work. If you check out the, the magic disappears, you can kind of go through the pages, but the magic isn't happening because you're not reading, you know, this is where audio books are all kind of hard because it, it chunks a lot. It keeps going in film. It keeps going even if you are not paying attention. Whereas, like the novel, if you're not doing the work, it really does kind of just you know just the the webs just fall apart. And that's why I just that's why I am a you know an advocate of the form, and I love it. And that's it's fascinating to me because like it, you know I was complaining to a photographer friend of mine about like you know it takes a lot of work, and it's like no, it's amazing because like any Russian oligarch can pop and say like I understand this this painting because he can he's got a million bucks, um, but you can't and you you can't you can't you know lie whether you, you have to read the book to be able to talk about it. Whereas like you can give it a little kind of razzmatazz you know on like visual art because you can just read the kind of artist statement and be like oh yeah it's about forgiveness. Burr, burr, burr. Um, and I, and, <laughs> uh, and that's why I think I kind of love it. Keep this, this is, this is of the, of the many art forms uh, that keeps, keeps the viewer honest. <laughs> Uh, I like that. I did have a question to you about that, Jeremy. I mean, we've been involved together on projects that are about, you know, incorporating visual art and literature and, and other sensory, you know, different different sorts of approaches. And I just wonder, you know, in, in the book, Jared is himself, you know, has aspirations to, to being a visual artist and, and so on. Just what, what other art forms, I suppose, um, have an impression on, on you and on, on this specific work? You know, I know some writers have um, playlists and, you know, so on. Is there anything like that for you with this piece? I mean, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah definitely. If, if anything, I'm probably more inspired by other forms, in particular the visual and performance art of like the kind of questions that seem kind of, you know, that, you know, literature and the kind of conversation around literature about kind of, you know, presentation and auto fiction and um, identity and, and all this kind of thing. These questions were kind of raised like 40 years ago uh, with, you know, people like Sophie Call and, uh, you know, Annie Arnaud, you know, Annie Arnaud was 
doing auto fiction, you know, um, and, and yeah, I think a better in a lot of the kind of last blush of it. Uh, I just, just adore her because it's so kind of, it's, it's really is kind of an interrogation of understanding of, of what is self and what am I experiencing? It's just kind of beautiful. And that's really kind of an inspiration there. And that's, and I would, you know, there was initial drafts that had um, photos because I was kind of just kind of in love with Sophie Call. And uh, it was relatively late. Uh, I was like, um, my editor was kind of questioning this is like, you're being cruel. It wasn't, these weren't her words, but what my revelation was, I was being really cruel to the reader because I had photos in it. And then the text would, um, was um, destabilizing what was in the photo. So the text did not match the photos. And there's only a very few reader who's going to make that connection. What they're just going to be is like, this is documenting Jared's experience. And I, I, I was like, it's, it's not good. I don't, I don't want to be cruel to the reader. I don't want, I, who wants to, you know, spend sixteen ninety nine on a book and just have the author sneering at your mistakes when he's the one who forced you to make those mistakes. So like, it just, it didn't make, and I was like, I was like, it's absolutely no, I much be much more generous. And I pulled them all out. I, I made my declaration. And then if they want to think it's me, that's fine. And it was an experiment as well. It's like, what is, what is the effect of this destabilization? Is it going to be worse for my family? Is it going to be worse for strangers who don't know me? Or maybe even people who just kind of know me? And it's been really fascinating. I thought my family would have the most trouble with it. But they know Jared, the author, so well that they got it immediately. And, you know, they're not, not all of them are kind of, you know, readers of literature strangers are curious and I think it's worse for people who just kind of know me. <laughs> mm. Mm. Do you mean, do you mean to say that the, you were concerned your family would be destabilized specifically by the, the version that had the pictures in or by the, by the text? No, no. So, the, so, just the, so whole the, thing. The, the version that exists yeah. is this book, the, the, the one with pictures Was doesn't exist. Early? That, that no. is on an alternative timeline. Mm. So they never saw that. They, and they only saw it published because I definitely don't want people's opinions <laughs> until it's published. Sure. And so that was that, that was a question I had for you, though. Like, was, was there any other kind of familial or ethical considerations around? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Let's hear about that. How was that? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's just, you know, I just... Yeah, I wanted to make sure everyone knew it was fiction and I wanted to make sure that this is what I, it is a fictional work. Like it is about me, but it's not a, you know, it's, it's sorry. It's even, I get confused. It's not about me. This is, I've used my experiences and, you know, things that kind of, you know, the kind of emotional truth of what it's like, you know, to be disabled in a world that just, they don't hate you. They just don't care. <laughs> they just, and in America with a kind of like, you know, the medical in the, you know, the lack of healthcare and social services, if you die, that doesn't matter. <laughs> and, you know, you see it just so kind of plainly now that it, it wasn't even about, they, they didn't even bothered whether, you know, the disabled or die. They really, it's, they just don't care if anyone else dies. It's just, it's real shocking. And, um, yeah. And yeah, so that they just totally got it. And it was really interesting um, to have those kind of conversations with, like my grandma and like my grandma, my grandma's a, you know, old school teacher. So she's, she's a big avid reader and like, man, you know, I, I should get a cut for like British, you know, Irish authors. Like there's like this hot zone of, of readership in Florida from like my family, basically just buying all these books. And I'm like, ah, oh, you got to read Evie Wilde. She's incredible. You're going to love her. Sarah Hall will blow your mind. So like, nice. <laughs> uh, Find us feet. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, that, that does sort of lead us on to from family to place and upbringing and and what the places you've you've lived, the places you've grown up. I mean, I think I'm right mm. in saying you grew up in Florida. Um, you've I met you when you were in Edinburgh. You've been in London. Mm. Now you're 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 based in France. I mean, what right. imprints, I suppose, do, do those places and flavors and textures leave on the work? What sneaks in? That, that's really, I mean, that's really really interesting because I didn't know I was. You know, I basically became way more American when I moved to Scotland. You know, like I didn't think, I didn't think anything of like growing up with circus people. I thought everybody grows up with circus families and like, you know, just you live, you grow up in a town that was, you know, you know, that one of the high schools offers circus electives, like, and it was like a permanent big top. So like in high school, when your credits could be trapeze work, you know, it's just... (laughs) Uh, I didn't know that was unusual. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know it was unusual to like, you know, know that nature wants to destroy you. Like that is not benign and like lovely little walks through the hills. You know, <laughs> like, no, it's like you better bring water because you're going to die. Like nature will kill you and won't even like look back to scrape its foot. Like that's how it works. Um, so I think it maybe made me more aware of things. Um, I think I, that's it honest, you know, it's interesting. I think, my adult life was spent in, in the UK. So I spent 20 years, you know, 20 years in the UK will change a man. And like, you know, I think maybe Mike, my, my stylistic approach of how I write novels and my, I love the concision of the kind of Irish British writers, especially in the short form. Like there's just no fat, like it's just beautiful. Like no, yeah. Each sentence is doing, you know, you know, and it's just right now the kind of like golden era of the short form in Ireland is just kind of a marvel to kind of be there and be able to steal from, frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think that, and I, I, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe it gives, I, maybe I'm a, I like being a foreigner because it lets me give me a bit of space. And certainly I've written British stories, stories set in Britain. I, I don't think I could maintain it for a novel just because, because my, I think my strength is dialogue. And in the, in the UK and Ireland, particularly like, you know, within a line of dialogue, you know, a lot about that character. And that to me is that that I just don't have access to that kind of fidelity. Like when you, you know, you know, and and when I moved over, I thought there was three language, there was three accents because I was relatively sophisticated American. I knew there was English, Irish, and Scottish. And then I come, I live, you know, I live in Scotland. I, I moved down to Leith and it's like, oh, there's three accents on this side of the street. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. And, and, and yeah, and that's something, yeah, like I, I am aware of my limitation. I, and I did try to do set some of this when this was short stories, I tried to reset it in, in the UK and I just, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It just, there's something kind of essential in the voices and the experiences that this book had, this book always had to be mm-hmm. uh, an American book yeah. Um, yeah. written I, by a Brit with a funny accent. <laughs> <laughs> I was speaking to yeah. Kevin Barry at an event recently and he, he similar, you know, he's, he, there's a, there's a sense for him, the Irish writer, of, you know, you can just tell if something's flat on the page and it is often to do for him with dialogue and with, mm-hmm. again, bringing those characters to life. Something you said right at the top, you know, that, that sense, they're not, they're not living on the page properly, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, again, like it's, I do think like I'm unashamedly a storyteller. I want to first tell you a story teller. And you know, my last name's McGinnis. I was raised in that kind of Irish American tradition where more Irish than the Irish, like, you know, and, but I think there was some thread of like that storytelling. It was really fascinating. Like how, how clannish it's really interesting of like 
the things that kind of like Ireland is kind of just kind of kind of like, yeah, that's not working for us right now. But like that's kind of preserved and like, you know, when, you know, I, I know how to explain myself when I meet people in the South is like, I'm from like Missouri McGinnis and they know what that means. Mm, like, mm-hmm. you know, that that's particular little, you know, you know, set to the, cl- of the clan there mm-hmm. and just storytellers, just all of them. My little, my little like, kind of my great grandma Bannon was had like red hair until she was in her, you know, till the day she died in her nineties. And she would tell these amazing stories and now she's gone. I've been asking. I've been kind of curious. So like, you know, did she ever tell you story, this story? And they're like, I don't know. If, no. And I'm like, so was grandma just making stuff up? Like just like entertain me and mm. tell me the story. And she was a funny woman. Mm. And like, and that, that banter, that's, you know, I'm about to go back up to Scotland and I, I just can't wait to just have a good banter with the cabbie that picks me up. Cause I know it'll be like a class, you know, Lovely. it'll just be premium. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I read, I read somewhere recently when an elder dies, the library burns. I love that. The stories go, don't they? When the, when the, the old go, um, Jared, I, w- I want to ask you a little bit about the humour in this book. I know others have, you know, The Guardian, mm. I believe, called it, uh, lac- it was full of lacerating gallows humour, etc. But I, I really like this this review that said on initial ex- inspection, you know, it looks like it's going to fit, def- the, the coward will definitely fit the bill of being a really sad book. You know, it's got the story of an, an addict who lo- loses the use of his legs in a car crash, kills which kills his ex-girlfriend, lands him at risk of prosecution, sends him home to live with his father, misery on toast, right? You know, I love that misery on toast. <laughs> but of course it's full of lightness and humor and mm. verve i mean you're a very funny guy but talk us through how you <laughs> how you just build that light and dark that kind of you know the from tragedy to quiet joy how does it how does it work well i mean it, it initially and i mean i mean that's it i knew we were going to go through some heavy we were, we were all we were all going to sit down and like i said it's this journey we're going to go together me and the reader and then we're going to do some work we're going to there's some real heavy emotional work we have to go through and so on one level it just it creates that kind of balance that you just need for a good work like you just can't read like you just can't have unremitting misery it just isn't how life works and if you're trying to capture life that's not it's not true to experience like i think in the most darkest moments that you know the laugh is a fear the laugh is a fear response the same you know like ah, it's a laugh because that's somehow in our you know that's just you know when you yeah it's it's somewhere in our lizard brain of like that's a response to kind of sad scary things and and so i wanted to capture that i want it created that light and dark and yeah it's, it is making sure that balance and like there is nothing worse then I mean, where you, I think, I think that's why humor is unexplored in literature is because it's dangerous. If you try a joke and it, and it fails, like the whole house burns down because <laughs> you, it's just so, it's so raw and pure, you know, pure down into something about that. We know when someone's faking a laugh and all that kind of stuff. And, and then the other thing as well is men don't communicate. <laughs> So I've just set up a, you know, and, and one of my main characters is depressed. So like, it's, you know, how do you then kind of keep that? How do you keep, you know, the, the narrative engine on the rails? And it came from that of like, this is these men, you know, who see themselves as cowards, that they have somehow acted cowardly in their life. You know, and it's the irony that they aren't, they're doing the kind of brave thing of trying to really kind of repair this relationship. But they do it in the man way of just kind of like taking the piss out of each other and, you know, 
you know, that humor of, of that. And when kind of the, the Sarah, the kind of main female character gets on, she is right up there with him and can compete. And that was always important to me is that it wasn't kind of manic pixie character to save this broken male character. That's those, that those books go on the, on the wormer <laughs> um, because you're just not again, respecting this character. Um, and so she's, she's right in there with him. And I, when I, you asked the, for a selection of a reading, I was kind of thinking about one where Sarah is just giving as good as she takes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of a lovely dynamic. It becomes kind of, you know, becomes a chorus of three mm-hmm. and it's kind of, yeah. And, yeah. but yeah, it's God, it's hard to get right. And yeah, I have tons of material that I kind of like had exercise as well, just kind of where it put in and it wasn't funny enough. And also that. Jared had to be the butt of the joke a few times. He couldn't just be just kind of an arsy, clever guy. Wisecracker, so yeah. Yeah, exactly, because that's boring as well. Mm. So. I've just got a couple of little, well, coming off that, actually, incidentally, I did want to know for, for, to you, you know, the, the title The Coward, to me, is another ambiguity in a sense. I think you sort of touched on it there, but, it, but I wondered, uh, who is the coward or is there more than one? And does it matter if the reader's coward is different to yours? Is that a problem? Yeah, and so the answer to that is absolutely. It's, I, you know, the best titles always keep a bit of space and don't spell it out for you, right? And it's like, yeah, you just, and it's really interesting. So the title, even when some of the, some of the kind of, you know, press releases went out, it had either untitled or the title that we were kind of um, chugging around. And um, to a very late and I, I got like, it would, I came up with the agent that came up with the editor and I just started getting annoyed and I started being a bit arsy and I was like, okay, the book is going to be called men who look like roller skates and the women that love them. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, no response. That that's that's how you know. Like they're done. You know, you get no response. You're like, oops. I, <laughs> I got that. But um, and so really, like to me, it was like with this book, I wanted to take a swing at the big boys, whether I miss or not. Like so, it was Dostoevsky, the idiot. Like you know, he's the idiot because he's actually believes in, he's a he's a true Christian, right? And everybody else is Christian, but you know, acting. Uh, otherwise. And to me, it was like, you know, these men, you know, what's the worst thing you can be as a man is, is, is a coward, you know, and it's, it's such a masculine term uh, that I don't think there was an equivalent, you know, for, for females because they're not graded on this, you know, they're not even kind of in the running. If you like can really look at it, you know, they're not allowed to, to even be, to even have this failure. And um, yeah, for, I mean, for me as these men see themselves as, as cowards, they hate, they failed, they failed somewhere. And, and it's ironic. And I mean, yeah, for me, the reason it was, and it was still very, very late in the game. And it really, it really was the kind of publisher coming to, you know, cause it went around and around. It was mm-hmm. the publisher, Jamie Bing, who really kind of said, well, what do you think the book should be called? And I was like, this is the title I like, but like, you know, my, you know, one person said it was rebarbative. And I was like, I'm going to look that up. And then I'm going to come back and say, and I was like, yeah, it's rebarbative. That's what I want. <laughs> but I don't know. I, that I also know that I don't know how to sell books. I just know how to, I know, I barely know how to write, write ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so when you get to these levels, you're starting to where, you know, the, the art leaks into the commodity. And mm-hmm. so you, I had to kind of trust them, but I was just kind of like, and you, they were unsure and I was unsure. And so I didn't fight as hard as maybe I should have. And maybe I would next time because mm-hmm. I just know that, 
you know, you just, you just kind of know when it works, you know, this, you, yeah. you do know it. Yeah. And it's um, got that kind of classical finish, actually, the coward, the idiot, the stranger, you know, it's got that kind of standard, yeah. you know, vintage uh, timelessness that's, that's extremely um, pleasing. Yeah. I've just got two quick fire questions for you, Jared, to, yeah. to close us out. It's just, well, you know, this book, it was obviously kind of, it came into the world during a pandemic. I don't want to give the pandemic loads of, loads of airtime really, but I just want to know how that's, I guess how it is now to be at this side where you're, where you're getting out and about now, you're going to festivals, you've got stuff on. It must be a good feeling, happy. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's been amazing to like, I was in a, like my, when I came back, so I'm here for two weeks, so in a bunch of events and it was delayed because they weren't letting people in from France because like Macron made Boris Johnson cry. So he wanted to kind of punish them or something. I don't know what's going on over there, but like um, only the French were not allowed back. So everything got delayed. Everything was a big mess. I had some events online, which were amazing, but it really was like my first event was in a room full of uh, booksellers. It was the booksellers association and they invite some writers to chat with stuff like that. And so I started meeting people like who sold books and like people came and were excited and talking about the book. And it was just this like big love of like, you know, I always talk about this in kind of ecclesiastical terms is that this is, the, this is the religion I picked, this kind of strange religion of literature. And this is, these are my people, this is our church. And we were just a bunch of zealots in here just, and I sat down with um, the guys from uh, after, after dinner and had a pint with them. The guys from Mr. B's Emporium and just the kind of enthusiasm for just not, not my book. You know, they love my book, but like not only my book, but just like books in general. Like, have you read this? Have you? And I had this like ridiculous list of like, and um, talking to people in the Europa editions. And I'm like, oh, that's amazing. And they're doing this magazine now called The Passenger. I was like, I want this book. I want this, you know, and I was just like, yeah. And I've, I was just, it was great. Now I'm kind of like, that's that. And now I'm going into bookshops and like, there's my book like that's that thing and i'll be like the first time i did it i was just, it was just like embarrassing i'm like that's me <laughs> that's me i'm there and and the bookseller was at owl bookstore she's like do you want to sign it i was like do you want me to sign i could do it it's totally me yeah. <laughs> and you want id i'll give you id i love it i love it and so it's been great it's been really because you work so hard and i'll often alone in the dark and you just don't know but i've just been floored by i mean the response and the reviews, like I know great books can easily disappear without a trace. And the fact that this one's gotten so much love and, and, you know, it's great for me, but I just, it's for the book, like this book, you know, I just, on certain emails, I just kind of write, go little, you know, every time I get a bit of good news, I'm like, go little book, go, you know, like it's out there and, you know, people are responding to it and, you know, in, in, in amazing ways. That's what you want to, that's what you want. That's why you do it. Why else would you do this stupid thing? You know, like waste your time, you know? Yeah. yeah so. Ali Smith, I think it is, says, um, the book's like a bird, you know, she flaps the book like a little bird and it just, at yeah. night it's doing its thing. It's there in the world flying around, you know, nice it's it's on its own and i just that's it i've done i've done the work as best as i can Mm -hmm. and i kind of and it's hard for me to say like you know it's a good book but i remember near it was near the final edit i was like this book doesn't you know mess around this this book is doing the work i wanted it to do and that's that's to me is like that's all you got that's the only thing that truly is exciting as a writer everything else is kind of you know it's 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 an industry and it's kind of it really doesn't involve you (laughs) well just on that's my final final note really was was simply and you know it's probably a ways off you know you're still very much in in you know in in this book but do you have any inkling of what's going to be coming down the line next i guess i mean things are things are kind of bubbling away where there's kind of talk about an adaptation and i'm kind of just kind of excited about like you know who's who's 
doing that and all that. And, you know, it's all these like, you know, it's like, this is the thing about adulthood. Like all the kind of exciting things involve a contract now, like <laughs> legal responsibilities. So like, but that's your like, so Hey, it's another contract. That means something good's happening. And so, yeah, it's, and it's been amazing. And it's, that's it. It's like, you know, I can, I can focus on writing now. And that's just the weird thing of like, as a writer, you're kind of always like, yeah, but this actually buys me time to do the thing that I just, I've, I've loved as, you know, I've always loved. I've been a reader and now I'm a writer and now, you know, and I'm an author, you know, and I was making jokes of like, I'm, I'm acclaimed someday. I'll be notable, you know, like it's just, <laughs> infamous. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, if it's, that, yeah that's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a, few, a few, uh, a few jurors in the uh, yeah the author's tent, and yeah, I could work on that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, great! Listen, Jared, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there. Um, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us today on to the this the writing life. It's been really really lovely oh, okay. to you know to well to read the book first first of all, and I and I really hope it flies. I'm I'm excited to see what happens next for you. Uh, no, thank yeah, and it, you've, the questions are great. I know you as a, an incredible reader, so it's just it was great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening and many thanks to Jared for coming onto the show today. If you have questions or want to get in touch about anything we're up to, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers' Centre. We have a Facebook page and, of course, our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk contains full information about everything we're doing, which, incidentally, is a lot. You can sign up to our newsletter there and also we'll find a link through to our Discord community, which I highly recommend because it's full of lovely writers from all over the world, in fact, talking and sharing notes and tips and work. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website by going to the Support Us page, and many thanks in advance if you do so. Please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast, as it does help other people to find it. Thanks again, do keep writing, and I'll be back next episode. Mm -hmm.